Hi, I'm Mark Thompson here for Jank on The Conversation. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I've worn, again, my credibility glasses for maximum credibility throughout the show. Thank you for being here. It is election time, and I'm glad to get into some election-related issues and even a candidate today, so we will get right to it. Uh, Bill Theobald, welcome. You're the senior writer at The Fulcrum, and I've got Thank all you. kinds of questions for you. Welcome. Well, fire away. I'm here and ready to answer them. We, uh, we want to talk about the, uh, the sanctity of the election system and how that has potentially been violated along the way, and then sort of building voter confidence and how that's been something of a project as well. So uh, I don't know how to attack this uh, best. I'll, I'll look to you a little bit, but I, what I would okay. sort of, what I would sort of uh, ask right out of the shoot is uh, how uh, and where are the election systems vulnerable? And are they vulnerable? Uh, well, I think that there are still places where there's vulnerabilities. Uh, the one that's gotten quite a bit of attention Lately, is the state of Louisiana is still the one uh, place in the country where there is not going to be uh, a paper trail uh, from your for people that vote there. the The big mantra this year, uh, as far as improving security, is having uh, a piece of paper that you can show uh, what the person's vote was, and in the process, you can use that to double check and make sure that the uh, the votes were properly uh, recorded. But uh, the situation in um, Louisiana hasn't gotten to that point yet. But pretty much the rest of the country has made the basic improvements that uh, the experts are saying are necessary. And they're kind of a throwback. I mean, I you, you look like uh, you were probably at a time when uh, we used mechanical machines to vote. And the rage was to get us into the modern world and have us uh, use computers. Well, now... Uh, we're sort of at a throwback time where the 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 uh, experts say we need to go back to using paper. Well, that's such that, a it's such a great point. I mean, it really is old school does rule the day, both absolutely. paper and even being disconnected from any kind of cellular absolutely. technology that might be able to hack in. That's exactly the case. Anything where there's a internet connection of any sort is a vulnerability. And so they're, you know, basically telling people don't have anything, you know, like that in your system, particularly on election day. So, you know, one of the things I think is going to be very interesting to watch is with these sort of uh, slower, less uh, um, modern techniques. Uh, there's some concern already that uh, it's going to take longer to to compile and report the results on election night. Which could cause some people to, you know, be concerned just because of the fact it won't be as instantly available as it has been in the past. It's interesting because, Bill, you know, we want in this culture to get the information immediately. We're used to getting oh, information yeah. immediately, and the oh, speed yes. with which we get information is more immediate. But as Absolutely. you suggest, we also now sort of want this old school a paper trail that will require a slower process. And, and Absolutely. Yeah. The uh, the Michigan situation is an interesting one because they've switched over to uh, having what's called no excuse absentee ballots, which means you know before you had to offer some kind of explanation as to why you weren't going to be able to make it to the polling place. Well, now in a lot of places you don't have to do that; they just provide you with a paper ballot. These folks in Michigan think that's going to mean a huge increase in the number of uh, perhaps 
paper ballots that are going to have to process. And the way the law reads there, they can't start counting those until the polls close on election night. So they could have this huge pile of votes that if they're given permission, they'd rather start counting them uh, as they come in. But that's not going to be allowed unless the state legislature changes the law. That's wild, by the way. That's really wild. Yeah. And it's all there, but it's not countable until election night. Nope. It, you know. Yeah, here's the reason for that. Under Michigan law, if you decide uh, after having you know, put together your paper ballot, you can change that vote all the way up until the close of polls on election night if you change your mind. Which is sort of weird, I think, as well. <laughs> I think so, too. I mean, if you're not sure, then don't vote until election day. But all right, okay, I, let's table that for another time. Okay, I want to talk sure. about the swing states a little bit and, and sure. about their voting systems. Sure. We, uh, we focused in a, a, in a little bit of our uh, reporting on that because we felt like uh, those were the states that are going to likely determine who the next uh, president is for the next term. And it's mostly a good situation, pretty much all a good situation in those states where those states have done a lot of the correct things, the paper ballots, the setting up to be able to do audits uh, if needed to, to check and make sure that the, the results are accurate. And uh, so almost every state that's in, among those that are considered to be swing states that's that's in good uh, shape. Uh, some of the changes were fairly uh, dramatic. In Pennsylvania, for instance, they had to replace all of their um, election equipment uh, before this uh, upcoming uh, fall election for the presidency. And so that's a very big uh, undertaking. And the, uh, the governor actually ma uh, issued an edict mandating that. And there was some pushback from some local officials. But they finally went along, and I, as far as I know, they're going to be able to get all of that implemented in time for the for the fall election. So it's been a substantial amount of work, lots of money, including lots of money from the federal government to help the states pay for this uh, and work and uh, to hire additional people to help with the security. Uh, and all that is happening uh, in all those states, and, and, and it kind of provides, I think, some reassurance. Uh, that if there are attempts, at least everything's being done to to to, to ward off those attempts. You talk about one of your in one of your pieces in the Fulcrum Bill about the fact that the Russians were demonstrably trying to hack into the Wisconsin voting system. Uh, actually, there is just one of the things that they concluded in the uh, reports was that they basically tested this being the Russians. They attempted to sort of scope out election systems in all 50 states. Uh, the the uh, there there were only a, a handful of actual successes. Just basically two places in Florida and in um, Illinois, where they were able to get access to the voter registration rolls. But again, I think one of the things that's important for people to understand and to appreciate is. There was no evidence that I've seen that there were any votes changed or that there were any people who were added to or removed for the voting rolls. So what's really happened is that was such a stunning uh, revelation to people. It has really shaken uh, the confidence that people have in the, the election systems. And you can see that in the polling when they ask people their confidence level. 
uh, about the about the election systems. It's just the mere fact that somebody was trying to do this. Uh, I think really was quite uh, a shock to a lot of people. You know, you've been at this for forty years, and I know you emphasize <laughs> just in I, and I mean, and by at it, I mean journalism. You know, I, oh yes, absolutely. And this is really a, a time when I feel as though the real stories of this age are carried by journalists. I mean, some of the yeah. official investigative bodies sure. uh, just really can't hold a candle to good old journalism. Well, I, I, I will agree with you 100% on that. Uh, I think that it's particularly important now when you have these, peop- these concerns that people have about credibility of elections, uh, the, you know, the honesty of uh, elected officials. Uh, this is the time when we need people who are taking a critical look uh, at our elected officials and the way we uh, are operating our our uh, institutions, and you know it's 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 time for us and the business to do our jobs, but also you know we need the support of uh, readers and viewers because that's the way this uh, uh, economy we have works. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I was just reading an article. I feel like it was in the Atlantic or. Uh, ProPublica or one of these, I, I don't know. And again, that's one of the other things about journalism today. You, you know, catch it all these different sort of disparate places. You know, it's not just yep. the Washington Post, New York Times, whatever. Uh, the three networks. Right. right, exactly. And and they were just talking about revenues. They really broke down quite effectively revenues and how revenues have diminished, you know, I mean, so Absolutely. substantially, really fallen Absolutely. off a cliff. It, yep. it, does it then fall to us, the public, to support the effort of independent journalism? Yeah, I think it's a two-way street. Obviously, if people uh, have uh, see value, like in anything in their lives, uh, they're willing to pay for it. So we have a responsibility to provide the kind of uh, coverage and the information that people find valuable. Uh, I, you know, I think one of the good things I, I would say about all that's happened in, in in journalism is there is a huge diversity in voices out there. And I think that helps people because they can uh, look at different sources. They can judge material for themselves as to what seems credible to them. They can find uh, people that seem to be of their kind of uh, background and opinion that might help them to to understand issues better. Uh, so I, I really I'm very much uh, an optimist. I've I've always been that way about where we're headed. It's a difficult time right now. But there's, uh, you know, there's a thirst and a hunger for people wanting to understand what's going on, and and the frustrations that some people have have sent them to the sources of information, and so the need is always going to be there, and I think it's just a matter of us doing our job the the right way. Wow, that, what a great thing to hear. I mean, I kind of get discouraged, you know. It's just so hard to support a family sometimes on a journalist salary sure. now, and I mean, as I say, local newsrooms have been decimated. We have to wrap yep. up now, but I'd love to have you back, and we can sure. chat more about that. Again, Absolutely. though, let's give you a, a little love. The fulcrum.us, <laughs> the fulcrum.us, and uh, Bill is at Bill Theobald on uh, on Twitter. And uh, congratulations on the work you do, Bill. Always appreciate well, talking you. to you. Thank you. Well, let's do it again. I talk to you later. To yeah, talk okay. to you soon. And the conversation continues in a moment. Welcome back to the conversation. Mark Thompson here. Let's go to New York. And let's get right into it. This is a really a good conversation to have, I think, potentially for a couple of reasons. Siraj Patel is with us, 
and he's uh, running for Congress in New York's 12th. Hi, Siraj. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. I want to talk all about you, and then I want a little time to talk about Bernie and progressive politics in the general election, because I feel like you've had a little experience with just this thing in, in some of the races you've been involved in. Absolutely, I'd be happy to, what okay. a race. Let, let's start first with you though. Uh, tell us about this race. You come out of, uh, you worked for Obama for a time, didn't you? That's right, um, when I uh, was in law school in 2008, I started out, um, I left law school to join the Obama campaign as a, a 25 year old field organizer in Colorado, knocking on doors and uh, um, you know, uh, gathering volunteers. And then I eventually switched on to doing advance, working for um, the president uh, or the senator at the time for seven months, traveling seven days ahead of him out of a suitcase for um, the whole campaign, sort of opening his doors, cleaning him up where he left. And I got to see, you know, the most remarkable election of our lifetime so far in that we, we had hundreds of thousands of people at events across the country, smiling faces, and it just, Reminds you of how exhilarating it is to be a Democrat when we are leading boldly on offense um, and and not sort of just clinging to a clinging to a, a fleeting past. And and so uh, to this race now, uh, what uh, what made you run? And tell us about your opponent. So look, first off. A district like mine, I'm in New York City's 12th congressional district, which is the east side of Manhattan, a little bit of Western Queens and North Brooklyn. Gerrymandered district with a little bit of three boroughs in it. And um, this is a district that leads in almost every facet of American life, media, entertainment, technology, finance, whatever. And it also leads in inequality. Far too many people on both sides of the East River are shut out of education and economic opportunity. And that's the promise of New York, right? My family moved here in the late 60s from India. You know, the halls of Wall Street and the Ivy League were shut off to people like them. And it's through hard work and education that, you know, we were able to build our American dream. But that story is almost more rare than a lottery ticket anymore. We are 27th in the world now on social mobility, which is really, really pathetic because central to the premise of the American founding is upward mobility. Now, my opponent, the 24-year incumbent in this seat, Carolyn Maloney, is one of the biggest recipient of corporate PAC dollars in America. She receives money directly from Goldman Sachs PAC, JP Morgan PAC, the very same companies that she then regulates in the Capital Markets Subcommittee. We even have a hearing from just a couple of years ago where she says she opposes a bill that was supported by municipal finance corporations, by, um, by the MTA, by people like that to make it cheaper for public entities to borrow and issue bonds. Because she, I quote, said that I oppose this bill because BlackRock, whom I represent, along with Vanguard and Fidelity, are opposed to this bill. Now, <laughs> that's the kind of crony capitalism that we cannot as Democrats accept anymore. Um, she was also an anti-vaxxer for 15 years in Congress, nine anti-vaccine bills. We already got an anti-vaxxer in the White House. We don't need to attack science as Democrats. She voted for the border wall in 2006, far before Donald Trump proposed it, and then turned around and took $2,000 of Donald Trump's contributions for her reelection campaign in 2010, uh, and has never donated that back to charity like so many other politicians have. Iraq war, um, siding with Trump on Iran over Obama. These are the things that you know you can't. If that person is called a progressive, then that label no longer has meaning. 
I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And it's interesting. I, I love that you're now that you mentioned progressive because uh, you yourself say you have some very uh, I don't even call them progressive ideas. Although you know, again, as you say, you can make the progressive uh, net and you can cast it as far as you'd like. But uh, I know UBI is one of those things that you've talked about. Universal basic income, and, and I like your take on it. Give us the shorthand on that. Totally. So we released a bold plan called the Family Opportunity Guarantee. It comes basically from, I think, a moral obligation and from part of my biography. So the Family Opportunity Guarantee is a five-part plan. The first is paid family medical leave. We are obviously far behind the world on providing that for all people. Medicare for kids, because you should be auto-enrolled in Medicare the minute you're born. And then you know be able to do what you want with that. Nationwide universal pre-K, a public option for childcare that is very important because you know childcare is more expensive than college tuition in in most places. So that's a very expensive thing when you're 20 to 40 years old at your lowest income levels trying to raise a kid. But here's the key part that you're talking about: we propose a $500 a month universal child allowance for every child in every family up to the age of five, and then 350 a month after that. Now that would replace the current alphabet soup of tax credits like the child tax credit, the EITC for people with kids, the dependent care credit. Those things all add up to cost about $300 billion a year in the country anyway. For only a slight increase, we would have child poverty in the country in the first year alone. And the people who desperately need this help the most who don't make enough money to earn um, Uh, the tax credit back, the child tax credit back, those are the people that we're leaving behind. We need to put everyone on a ladder of wealth creation. And this policy would pay for itself back because every dollar spent on a child, eradicating child poverty, yields $7 back. Canada did this in 2016, 17 other industrialized nations offer some type of child allowance. Now, we call it universal child allowance. Some folks on the internet started calling it a UBI for kids and though kids don't get an income, this is necessary. Look, there's a market failure in the country. Raising a kid is work. Our current economy doesn't reward or pay for that work, but we need it. So there are a lot of reasons why this is a great policy. And we look forward to talking to and taking back the mantle of family as progressives. When you talk about the loss of the upward mobility in America, that that dream has faded for a number of different reasons. Is the income disparity and sort of the the ivory tower that we've built, or uh, is that the biggest problem? Oh, I absolutely think so. I think uh, when we look at upward mobility, we know that, that we have a massive um, inequality problem, obviously, and there are a lot of solutions we need, like higher taxes on the wealthy, not as a punishment, by the way, for success, but as an investment in our country's future. We spend 10% of our federal budget on children. If everybody really believes in equality of opportunity, and I know Republicans pay lip service to that, I know corporate Democrats pay lip service to that, then let's put their money where their mouth is. Why don't we guarantee opportunity for every single child? No one is born into child poverty, which no one born into child poverty chooses it. No one should have to mortgage their future in order to go to college or to get a vocational education or community college. No one should have to be born without health insurance Child's care is a child's right. All those things go right to the heart of equality of opportunity. And I think we have to at least start there because there's consensus in theory across the political spectrum that people do believe that in America, 
everyone should have the same opportunities to work hard and get ahead. I, I mean, I love your emphasis on on uh, early childhood education and on kids. I just feel the die is cast so early everywhere, you know, and, and, and we're no different in this country. Now I've left a little time to ask you uh, about Bernie and the progressive message and whether or not it can fly in a general election, if Bernie is the standard bearer for the Democrats. And the reason I'm asking you is that I feel as though you've had a little bit of exposure with this because you're this progressive guy in New York, a lot of rich people, and then the haves and have-nots, if you want to think of it that way, the rich and the not rich. Uh, tell me how the progressive message plays there and then handicap how you play it in a general election. Oh, look, the progressive message, I think uh, we have to talk about it um, in terms of values, right? So we cannot let the Republicans uh, monopolize the family. We cannot let Republicans monopolize economic opportunity. And absolutely, uh, Bernie has changed the conversation for us. Basically, almost every single candidate in the 28, uh, 2020 Democratic presidential primary is far more progressive uh, thanks to what have now become mainstay Democratic positions, uh, attacking the cost of college, um, providing universal health care for all. Even Amy Klobuchar uh, talks about the need for having universal health care. That should tell you something. So um, the message works so long as it's tied to values. And I think that, um, look, anyone can beat Donald Trump in a presidential election. The man is not that popular. And uh, I know no matter who the Democratic nominee is, I literally mean anyone, uh, we're all gonna work our butts off to get them elected because we all know the stakes are too high. Donald Trump is an existential threat to our democracy. I fear that if he wins this race, we may be shut out of electoral opportunity for the rest of our future. They will make voter suppression the law of the land. They will rig elections and it just isn't acceptable. So we have no choice. Wow, so so well said. Siraj, good luck with this uh, with this uh, race that you're in. And uh, let me just uh, post a little information. Siraj, of course, is sirajpatel.nyc. You can donate there at uh, actblue.com slash donate slash sirajpatel2020 and volunteer sirajpatel.nyc slash volunteer nyc. But it's all there at the website, sirajpatel.nyc. Uh, such a pleasure to meet you. Uh, via Skype and uh, get a chance to talk to you and good luck with your race. Thank you so much uh, for giving me the opportunity and um, uh, keep it up, guys. Thanks a lot, man. And we look forward to hearing good news from you. Uh, that's it. Uh, it's been interesting. I look forward to the next time. Thank you for joining us for the conversation. Uh, I have a podcast called The Edge with Mark Thompson. You can find it on most podcast platforms and maybe you'll uh, wanna check that out. But either way, we'll see each other again here on TYT. And until then, bye-bye.